So for the past month, we have been taught by God through Peter about suffering. In that same time period, our church has been scattered. Some due to illness, some due to concern of illness, some due to travel, some due to family issues, some due to start of school or college season, but we have been scattered. And God is faithful in that. I have pondered whether or not God sovereignly placed us in this text at this time because he knew what was coming and wanted to help us prepare, or if God orchestrated the most gloriously frustrating sermon illustration of all time. But whichever way we look at it, God has enabled us not just to talk about a trial, but to actually go through one. And what we've seen in the last month of looking at these passages on suffering is sometimes you will suffer in spite of doing good. Sometimes you will suffer for doing good. But we are united to Christ. We are united to Christ in those things because Christ himself was righteous. And yet he suffered at the hands of the unrighteous. But he did this to bring glory to God and also to bring others to be reconciled to God. And then he has given us that same type of ministry. We're to follow in his example. That when we suffer for the sake of righteousness, we are to keep our conduct honorable. We are to do so in the worship of God and we're to do so in the hopes of seeing other people come to know God. And so today we're wrapping up this rather long section on suffering with a specific teaching on trials. And so if you have one of the worship guides and you are a note taker, let's start with this life truth in your outline. Trials are anticipated in the Christian life as God wills for the benefit of his people. In verse 12 that Nick read a moment ago, Peter says, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Trials are trying circumstances. And a trial, a trying circumstance can be something that happens momentarily. It could be something that just happens on your way to work or school or just in the midst of your day. And it, it may not last but just a few minutes. A trial can also be something that is in a longer season of time. But it's any trying circumstance that you face. And Peter's instruction to the church is, don't be surprised when they happen. And that word surprise can literally mean don't be staggered by it. So I want you to think about, as Peter is saying, don't find yourself unprepared for a trial. Don't find yourself staggered by a trial. The picture is if someone was to shove you and you're not ready for it, and you fall down. Or if someone was to punch you and you're not prepared and you go down. Rather, he's saying, be ready, be prepared, you're going to face trials. That way, when the punch comes or the shove comes, your feet are set and you don't go down. Be prepared. And his instruction is not how to avoid them, because some people, that would, that would be our idea. Like, okay, 
I don't want to let a trial surprise me, so I need to be ready for it so I can get out of its way. And that's not his instruction. His instruction is, they're going to come, and when they do, don't think that that's a strange thing. Don't think that because you're living the Christian life, that it is a strange thing that you are facing a trial. Church, there must be a framework in your theology that allows for trials and their benefit. This is one of the key issues with what is called the prosperity gospel, which teaches us that if you live the right way and have enough faith, then you don't face any difficulties. There's no framework for suffering. There's no framework for trials in prosperity teaching. I grew up in that type of teaching. That type of teaching, the idea is that any trial you face, it always has to do with Satan. It's from Satan. And so you need to get out of its way or you need to get out of it. And the way you do that is by getting enough faith. And when you have enough faith, you can get out of the trial. And many people who live with no framework in their theology that allows for some type of trial they get destroyed by the trial. It causes them to question everything. Because if their whole theology is, if I have enough faith, then God will save me from the trial, and God doesn't save me and keep me from a trial, then their thought process is either, well, I just can't have enough faith, so I'll walk away, or God really isn't able. This life we're living right now, this pandemic life, If you, I don't know, I've imagined going back two years ago and having a conversation with myself and saying, hey, just just a hint, here's what life's going to look like in two years. And not only would that have probably crushed my soul, but I, I wouldn't have believed it. As I said during the prayer time, we are a society that is so stressed. There's no rest in any area. Everything's different. It doesn't matter if you're going to church, if you're going to work, your home life, everything, family reunions, vacations, everything looks different. It's like there is no escape. And so what you see in the world is the result of that stress. It is division, it is fear, It is anger everywhere because everybody is stressed. And what we're being told in the Bible is that it should not be this way for us. That's why I keep preaching to us over and over. Do not get caught up in the division and in the anger and in the fear. And don't let your life be led by those things. I know people are scared. I know people are scared to go to church. I understand that. And I am not the dispenser of medical advice, okay? But what I do know from the Bible is we cannot be led by fear. And there are certain things that God has told us to do that there were no pandemic exceptions for. He knew that those things would happen. I want us to be wise. I want us to be bold. And I want us to not give in to the things the world is giving in to.
I don't want us to be divided. I don't want us. I know we live in a frustrating world. I know we get frustrated at our leaders. I understand that. I do too. But we can't let that control our lives. Because if that's controlling our life, Jesus is not controlling our life. And Jesus told us in John 16, I say these things to you that in me you may have peace because in this world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I've overcome the world. His message wasn't, I've overcome the world so you won't have tribulation. He says, you're going to have tribulation, but take heart. Take heart means be confident, be hopeful, be bold. Why? Because I've overcome it. I've subdued the world. I'm in control. There is nothing that happens even in tribulation that is outside of my control. And so that's why Peter calls trying circumstances, he calls them fiery trials in verse 12. Fiery trials that come upon you to test you. Fiery ordeals that come upon you to prove you. That's what testing means. It means to prove you. The picture here is fire as refinement. Fire that is used to both prove a metal as precious and also purify that metal from its any impurities that are in it. And that is how Peter describes trials, fiery ordeals. They have come to not only prove the preciousness of your faith, but to help it. So in your outline, biblical testing... When the Bible says fiery trials come to test us, biblical testing is not so much us proving something to God, but rather God proving something to us. See, God uses trials. God is the refiner. God sends the fiery ordeal sometimes. And the end result of that, when we get to the end of that fiery ordeal, the end goal, the end result is not for us to look at God and boast and say, see God, I persevered. I'm yours. Rather, it is that we get to the end of the fiery ordeal and God testifies to us, I kept you and you preserved, so rest assured, you are mine. You persevered because you're mine. And this is for your good. What I'm doing is for your good. So in the outline, biblical trials serve to affirm we belong to God as well as strengthen our spiritual weaknesses. When we go through a fiery trial and we meet that trial head on and we persevere, it affirms to us that we belong to God. God kept us in the trial. And we also know he's using it for our good. He's strengthening strengthening our weaknesses. So what are those weaknesses? I would define a weakness as any place in our life where we are not yet like Jesus completely. So again, in your outline. Him strengthening our weaknesses is Him maturing us in our union with Christ. His death, His resurrection, and His pattern of life. God uses trials to mature us in our union with Christ, His death, His resurrection, and His pattern of life. Look at verse 13. So he's already told us, don't be surprised with the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. That's to refine you, to prove you belong to him and to purify you. 
It's not something strange happening. God's planned it. And then verse 13, but rejoice in so far. In other words, here's the reason. Rejoice as you share Christ's sufferings that you also may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So far from being staggered by trials, we are to keep on rejoicing even when trials come. Our joy, our and, and joy is tied pretty closely to happiness, even though we, we tend to separate those two out. But it's pretty close. But joy isn't ebbing and flowing because of our circumstance. Rather than being staggered by circumstance, we actually are continuing to be joyful. And I know that's really hard for us to understand. It's like how to be joyful when painful things are happening. But I would submit to you that on smaller scales, we endure painful things joyfully all the time because we know the outcome of that thing. When we went to get Jack, we had to fly 13,000 miles in 20 hours to go and get him. I am not a flyer. I am not a good flyer. Some of you, I know you say, but you believe in the sovereignty of God. I do, but I'm convinced that's how God's going to take me out. That's what I always think when I get on that plane. All right. And so I am just, I am a nervous flyer and I didn't like those 20 hours on a plane, but I was joyful. It was painful, but I was joyful because I knew what would happen when we landed. We were going to get Jack. I knew coming home, we were going to meet our family with Jack. He was, we were presenting him to our family and our church family. So I knew that. So it was painful, but I had joy. And on a larger scale, that's what trials are. That's what trying circumstances are. Endure them with joy because in them you are participating with Christ in his sufferings. And you know the outcome. If you have a Bible, if you would go over to Romans 6 for a moment. I want to show you this in Romans chapter 6. And I'll take this moment to say, as I always do, if you don't have a Bible, even if you're watching this from our webpage and you don't have a Bible and you would like a copy of God's Word, if you'll get in touch with us, we will get you a copy of the Bible. We have one for you. But look in Romans 6, verse 5. I'm going to read down through verse 10. Actually, verse 11. Paul writes, For if we have been united with him, with Christ, in a death like his, then we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lived, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul is describing what we don't have time to dive deep into, union with Christ. Christ died and was resurrected, and he now lives as he did previously. He lives for God. He lives with God. And then Paul says this is the Christian life. Union with Christ means you share in his death. Verse 6 in Romans 6, you die to yourself. You die to 
all the things you want and all the things that you desire, you die to that. You pick up your cross. You follow Him. He gives you new desires, new dreams, new hopes. But being united with Christ also means that you are united in His resurrection. Just as Jesus had the power to live again, you now have the power to live again. Live anew. You die to yourself, but you live a new life. That's part of union with Christ. A spirit-filled life. And being united with Christ means you now live His pattern of living. Verse 11. Consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. So now you follow the pattern of Jesus. Which means you live as righteously as you can and sometimes you're going to suffer for that. Sometimes you're going to have trials even though you're living rightly. Because you are united to Christ and His life is in you and you're in Him. And that's the life of Jesus in this world. To live righteously and sometimes to suffer for it. For the glory of God and the good of others. And what Peter is saying in his in this verse 13 is you can keep rejoicing in trials. Because you know that means you're united to Christ. And you know that means that God is maturing you. And helping you to become more like Jesus. And he says in verse 14, he gives a specific example of what this looks like. Be joyful even in your pain because you know that God is doing something in that pain to make you more mature in your union with Jesus. And sometimes, verse 14, you will be insulted for the name of Christ. But if you are, remember you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. He doesn't say, know that if you're insulted for the name of Jesus, you'll one day be blessed. He says, know that if you are insulted for the name of Jesus, you are blessed right now as the insult is taking place. Because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Some of our suffering is indirectly for His name. We're not in particular going through a pandemic because we're Christians. But there is a particular way that we're supposed to go through the pandemic because we're Christians. And that invites suffering. We are participating in this ongoing life of Jesus. We're dying now and we're living in this new pattern. We're laying down what we want. We're following Him even when it's against the world's pattern. And that may invite suffering. But sometimes we'll suffer directly for the name of Jesus. Right now, we have brothers and sisters that we have never met that are suffering in Afghanistan for the name of Jesus. There's a lot of, in case you guys don't know this, there's a lot of misinformation on the internet and social media. Spoiler alert. But I have tried to search for reputable sites, reputable Christian organizations to understand really what's going on there. One of them that I actually found me, I say I found them, but it actually came to me, that I, I think is a site that can be trusted, reports that the Taliban in Afghanistan 
has a hit list of known Christians that they are targeting right now to find them and kill them. And that there are many Christians right now who are fleeing into the hills in Afghanistan to safety, but there are many Christians who are choosing to stay right where they are and continue to share the gospel. Because in Afghanistan is the second fastest growing church in the world. So they are staying there, being targeted in order to keep sharing the gospel. And one of the missionaries said, our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan continue to inspire us with their boldness and their resolve in their darkest hour. They are ministering to people who right now are being told to put marks on their door if they have daughters over the age of 12 so the Taliban can come and take them as wives. And if they have daughters over 12 and they don't mark their door and they're found out, their families are being executed. And this is, this is who these Christian brothers and sisters in Afghanistan are trying to minister to right now and share the gospel with. Now, here's what some people will do. They will try to motivate the church by guilt. If they can do this, then surely we can do this. If they can do that there, surely we can do this here. And, and I do think it's biblical to be encouraged and inspired by other people's faith and our brothers and sisters and what they're going through. But I also don't think guilt's a very good motivator. The reality is suffering is always going to happen on different scales. It's never wise to compare suffering. When this letter was written, First Peter, and it was sent around to these different churches, it's very likely that the different churches were facing different kinds of suffering, different levels of suffering. So here's what I think we can know. When you participate with Christ, suffering brings power. In your outline, suffering for the name of Jesus can lead to a richer supply of power in the Holy Spirit. And I think we get that from verse 14. If you're insulted, reproached, persecuted for the name of Jesus, you're blessed. Why? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. I think he's saying the spirit of the glory, the power of God rests upon you in a special way. I think God gives us powers that equate to the trial we're in. So my question to us right now is not, are we being like our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan? My question to us right now is, are we looking for the power of God to thrive in the midst of the trial that we're in the way they're looking to the power of God to thrive in the midst of the trial that they're in? And if we're not, then we are called to. And this power comes upon us, according to verse 16, so that even if someone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. It's only three times in the Bible we're called Christians. This is one of them. It means Christ follower. How do you glorify God in the name Christ follower? You act and you speak even when you're suffering in ways that show how glorious God really is. 
Church, in this pandemic, in this trial, carry yourself in a way that shows people how glorious God is. Act in a way that shows people, I carry the name Christian. I am a Christ follower. My Lord is full of wisdom. My Lord is full of power. My God is sovereign over everything. I'm not confused. We're not divided. We're not overcome by fear. We are filled not with bitter hate, but with love. Carry yourself in a way that shows how glorious God is. Trying circumstances are fiery trials. They purify you and they prove you. And Peter really drives this point home in these two verses, 17 and 18. He drives home this point that he's making. That trials are used by God to purify you and prove you. And he says in verse 17 and 18, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? He is speaking here of God's fire of testing. God's fire of testing. And this judgment that he's talking about, when he says, judgment begins at the household of God, judgment there is not equated to condemnation or punishment necessarily. It is rather more of a judicial evaluation, a judge making an evaluation of someone to see if they are approved or disapproved. And Peter says that type of judicial evaluation to see if you're approved or disapproved starts with the church. Let's just say as a side note, we want to start with the world. We want to evaluate them first. The Bible says it starts with us. It starts with the church. Likely Peter is getting this from Malachi chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, if you'll go there. Malachi 3, Old Testament prophet, the last one in your Bible before Matthew. Find Matthew, go left. Malachi chapter 3. Let me just read to you the first three verses there. Malachi chapter 3. God says through the prophet Malachi, Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. If you are a note taker in your Bible or whatever, underline his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi. Underline the sons of Levi. And refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. So what happens in Malachi? All of a sudden, God appears. Malachi says, all of a sudden, sudden, the Lord is going to come to his temple, the building that has his name on it. And when he does, he is going to bring a purifying type fire. He's going to start with the Levites, those 
those who are tasked with making offerings in the temple. He's going to purify them first. And then they're going to be able to offer sacrifices that are acceptable by God on behalf of the people. So the people are being purified. And all of this is happening in the temple. And the result will be that their worship is acceptable. And so Peter takes this picture from Malachi 3 and he applies it to us, the church. So follow. We are God's house now. We're God's temple. And Christ has come to us. The Lord has come to His temple. The Lord has come to His people, us. And His judgment, His evaluation starts with us. What does that look like in Malachi? It's not condemnation. It's a cleansing and it's a purifying. And who are the ones in the New Testament that offer sacrifices of worship? Us. We're not just the temple, we're the Levites. We're those who offer the sacrifices. And so, what we see in your outline is that God's fire of testing purifies His people for a life of worship. Purifies His people for a life of worship. That's what God's doing in trials. He is cleansing us and purifying us so that we are able to offer more acceptable worship. What's what's worship in the Christian life? Your whole life laid before Him. Dying to self, living to Christ in His Spirit, living in the pattern of Jesus. I said, trials make us more mature in our union with Christ. Another way to put that is trials make us more acceptable worshipers. Because we're growing in Christ-likeness. What does that look like? Three, three or four, three thoughts actually. What it looks like to be purified. It removes our sin. Removes sin. Sometimes trials come to get us to repent. Sometimes we face trials in our lives. I think it would be a healthy exercise for us every day to be confessing our sin to God and asking Him to reveal sin to us, but it would certainly be healthy in the midst of difficult times to ask God, is there anything that I am withholding from you in repentance? Is there anything that I need to confess? Sometimes God removes sin from our life through a fiery ordeal. Another way that we're purified in trials is that, is that we, it grows us in reliance on God. That that fire of testing actually grows us. It, we learn how to rely on Him more. Because in the midst of a trial, our eyes should go up. In the midst of a difficult time, we have to look to God as our provider, as our help, as our refuge. So God will use trials to turn our eyes back to Him. To help us see where we've been looking to other things. And other people to help us. Rather than looking to Him. And trials sometimes give us greater passion for Christ and His church. The other night, I was on my way home from my mom's. She lives up in Walker County, and so to get home, I take this long stretch of what's called 22, Interstate 22. If you've ever driven it, it's nothing, surrounded by nothing. And it's very dark, and so I'm coming home from her house about 1 a.m. down this dark road, and I've just, I've got our worship list for the church. It's just blaring 
in my Jeep and I'm, I'm driving down 22 and I'm just singing these songs. And what I was doing was picturing the last few months. Some of the most magnificent times of worship that I've had in the 15, um, I'm sorry, 18 years that I've been in this church. And I was comparing that in my mind to the last few weeks, which we have also worshipped well, but we've been scattered. And what I was longing for and praying for was not just worship for us as a church, but God would return us to that picture and an even greater picture than what we were experiencing a couple of months ago, where this room is again filled with worshipers and people who are joining together as a faith family and lifting the Lord up and singing His praise. And you know what? If God allows that and brings that, it will be far sweeter because of this trial. It will be far greater. There will be a greater affection because of what we've been through. God uses trials sometimes to give us greater passion for Him and His church. But that fire of testing that purifies His people in your outline will consume the wicked. In Malachi, if you're still there, in Malachi 3, you can turn one page depending on your Bible and you'll be at Malachi 4. And let me just read the first verse of Malachi 4. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evil doers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root or branch. The reality is judgment will begin in the house of God, but it will not end with His church. The fire will eventually consume the earth. And that evaluation of judgment will be much different. And anyone who doesn't know Jesus will be consumed by God's fire. Which is why we are reminded so much of how important it is to share the gospel. And church to not be moved from that mission in the midst of a pandemic or the midst of anything else. If Satan can shut the church down out of fear, he will. Because the church is the means by which people come to know Christ and avoid the fire of judgment. We're not to be staggered during trials. We are to rejoice because God is among us and God is purifying us. And it is not always easy. It's not always easy. Trials are hard. But His discipline proves that He loves us and that we're here, that we're His, and that He's making us better worshipers. And the question are, is are we submitting to His work? In the midst of these trials, are we submitting to His work? Are we submitting to what He's doing? I said to you a few weeks ago that I, I fear we're getting distracted in the wrong battles. That we're getting rolled up into the world's reaction to their fear and their division and their hatred. For them, this trial, any trial on the earth, is a preview of what's to come if they don't know Christ. But for us, this is a time for us to submit and learn and be changed. And maybe that's a key to the trial ending. So let me give you a gospel plea. 
Let's look at verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is really Peter's summary statement of everything we've studied the last four or five weeks, and if you will, it's probably the thesis for his entire first letter. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. He uses the word creator. God is creator. He is the architect of everything. He's the provider of everything, and therefore he will watch over everything that looks to him. And he calls us in our trials to entrust our souls to him. And here's what it looks like to entrust your soul to him. Here's how you know if you're doing it. You keep doing good even in the trial. You don't stop doing good in the trial. That's how you know you're trusting God in the midst of it. If we're suffering, it's not by chance, it's not by fate, it's because it's God's will. And I I know that is difficult. And some people have built entire theological frameworks around avoiding that reality, that God sometimes wills suffering. Let me read you what a modern-day theologian said about this. Man, I've quoted to you before, Wayne Grudem. He says it much better than I could. While this at first may seem harsh, upon reflection there is no better comfort in suffering than this. It is God's good and perfect will. For therein lies the knowledge that there is a limit to the suffering, both its intensity and its duration, a limit set and maintained by the God who is our Creator and our Savior and our Sustainer and our Father. And therein also lies the knowledge that suffering is only for our good. It's purifying us, drawing us closer to God and making us more like Him in our lives. In all of it, we're not alone, but we can depend on the care of a faithful Creator. We can rejoice in the fellowship of a Savior who has also suffered. And we can exult in the constant presence of a spirit of glory who delights to rest on us. So in your outline, church, keep your footing steady. Don't be staggered by trials. Keep your footing steady by remembering that trials are part of God's plan for His people. Because... It's his plan, he sets the limits of those trials, and he plans their outcome. He sets their limits, and he plans their outcome. So make your trust in him firm by not shrinking back. Don't shrink back from love. Don't shrink back from purity. And don't shrink back from service. Don't let a trial be the reason you stop loving one another deeply. Don't let a trial be the reason that you give yourself license to walk back into sin or to act like the world. And don't let a trial be the reason that you lay your spiritual gifts down and stop serving the church that God has made you a part of and the people that He has called you to love. Obviously, I know there are times where Circumstances pull us away from those things. 
as we're sick or we can't engage. And so I understand that. But what we're talking about here is a pattern of life. Don't let your pattern of life be that trials pull you from love, purity, or service. Let it be that the pattern of life is that trials make you love people more, desire purity more, and serve even harder. So I invite the worship team to come back up. You guys can bring the lights down. We're going to go into a time of singing, of worship, and I want us to pray. I want us to pray together. I want us, I want to invite you this morning to pray for two things. And, and as you can, let's sing together, but let's pray. So where you are in your seats, I want you to pray. If you want to come up here to the front and pray and kneel, you can if you want to kneel where you are. But I want to pray for two things. One, I want to ask you to pray for Agape and this community that we are in during this time of trial. You've heard God's word. He's equipped you to what, what to pray for them. So take some time to pray for your church and pray for the community. And then the second thing that I want to do is I want to ask you to pray for Afghanistan. I want to ask you to pray for Afghanistan. Hey, Josie, would you look and see if you can see my phone? It's, um, never mind, my phone is, never mind. I I just totally lost my mind. My phone's right here. All right. um, I took a picture of some things this morning that this missionary site was asking us to pray for Afghanistan. But in a technological twist, I can't get to the picture because it's on my phone, which is recording the broadcast. So I'll just do my best to remember what those prayers were. I want us to pray for Agape. I want us to pray for the community that we're in. I want us to pray for Afghanistan. Church, please listen to me. I want to ask you to do something. Don't make this situation in Afghanistan political. There is a time and a place, okay? There is. There's a time and a place to talk about who our leaders are and the decisions they're making. There is. Those are things that we should consider. We are given the right in this country to vote who we want our leaders to be. So we should think about that, pray about that, discern that, and there's a place to discuss it. But listen, what is happening to the church in Afghanistan is not to be used as a talking point on politics. People's lives are at stake And the enemy is Satan who is trying to destroy the church. And if the way that you talk about what's happening in Afghanistan, if the way that you post about it, if the way you think about it is entirely political, then we are doing an injustice to our brothers and sisters in Jesus because it's not political to them. Please pray for the church there. But don't cause people to stumble and not pray because the prayers are mixed with our commentary on politics. Separate those two things. Pray for those who are escaping into the mountains for their protection. Pray for those who are staying in the cities to share the gospel for their protection and that people would be saved. Pray that the church in Afghanistan would remain bold, courageous, and under God's sovereign hand. I invite you to pray. Worship 
and mingle worship with your prayers where you are or up front. Pray for the church here. Pray for the church there. May God hear us and may God answer.